Let's uh, just bow our hearts, shall we, as we turn to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, once again that we are looking at something here that is living and powerful. These, Lord, aren't just dead words written by people a long time ago. This is your word to your people and it's timeless. And it speaks to us this morning as much as it spoke to the people in the day in which it was written. So, Father, just give us ears that will hear, hearts that are ready to receive. Father, take away the, the preconceived ideas and the prejudices that so often stop us from growing. And, Father, help us just to allow you to speak to us this morning, we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have come to be our teacher, to help us to understand the things that Jesus has said and has taught us. And we recognize that in every page of Scripture we see Jesus. And so, Father God, we now ask that we would grow in knowledge and grace as we come humbly before your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If we turn to chapter 18, so we're going to look at, really from verse 16, we're just going to read some of the text, just to get a, a bit of the flow of where we were, and then we'll move straight into the study. So, chapter 18, verse 16, and we, at that time, and we'll look at the time in history in a moment, but at that time did Hezekiah cut off all the gold from the doors of the temple um, and from the pillars uh, which Hezekiah, uh, the king of Jude, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So we find this Assyrian uh, threat against the nation. And then we carry on uh, and we read, And the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh from Larshish to king Hezekiah. That's the, the king of Assyria is now sending these this envoy, these envoys, this delegation to Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they were come in, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the fullest field. And when they had called out to the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph the recorder. And Rab Shekah said unto them, Speak now to Hezekiah. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Thou sayest, but they are but vain words, I have counsel, I have strength for the war. Now on whom dost thou trust, that thou rebellest against me? Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt, on which if a man lead, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, unto all that trust on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose highest places and whose altars Hezekiah is taken away? And it said to Judah in Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now therefore I pray thee, give thee pledges to my Lord the king of Assyria, and I will deliver thee two thousand horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants? And put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. Am I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And just an editorial comment, he's speaking blasphemy there because God hadn't told him to do this. But he carries on and says, Then said Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah, unto Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, to thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and talk not to them in the, uh, in the Jews' language in the ears of the people that are on the wall. So what's happening is that they're speaking in Hebrew and everybody can understand. And they're saying, look, don't speak to everybody, just, just talk to us. But Rabshakeh said unto them, 
Has my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Has he not sent me to the men which sit on the wall? And that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spoke, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither has let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me, Buy a present, and come out to me, and then eat you every man of his own vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink you every one the waters of his cistern, until I come and take you away unto a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive oil and of honey, that you may live and not die. And hearken not to Hezekiah when he persuades you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Serevaim, Hena and Ivar? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of mine hand? But the people held their peace, and answered him not a word. And the king's commandment was saying, Answer him not. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the house, over the household, and Sheba the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent, and told him the words of Rab Shaker. Now that's where we finished last time, and that's where we're going to pick up. But just so we've got the context and the history... We've seen the northern kingdom of Israel fall to Assyria. That's what he's just been bragging about. The northern kingdom couldn't stand against this mighty king, the king of Assyria. So they've now been taken off to Assyria. And what the king of Assyria did was to then bring the Samaritans, as they became known, these people from other lands, and plant them in Israel, in the northern kingdom. And they didn't know the culture and the custom and so on. But they then sent a priest back that had been taken away captive from Assyria. They sent this priest back, probably not even a a Levite, because if you remember in the northern kingdom, anybody could become a priest if you fancied a go at it. And so they send this priest back to try and teach the customs and so on of the land. And this is why we end up in Samaria, as it's referred to then, as this, uh, this kind of mixed religion. Some paganism, some other things, and also some Judaism all interwoven. And this is why after the exile, after the Babylonian captivity, because we'll see eventually Judah taken away to Babylon, when the Jews come back to Judah, they want nothing to do with these Samaritans. Because it's just a hybrid religion. And that's why there's this antagonism between the two groups, which we see going on up into the days of Jesus. Now, down south, Hezekiah is now the king. We've seen already that most of the kings of Judah were bad kings. They didn't follow after God. But five kings were good, and Hezekiah is one of the best of them. And we've already looked at this individual a little bit. Now, just to give you an idea, this is a great boasting we've just seen going on in chapter 18 of this great king of Assyria. Well, at this time, this was one of the largest empires the world had known to this point. An incredible empire. Just wiping out any other kind of form of power in their way and subduing nations under them. Babylonian had been kind of subdued. And Babylonian had yet to rise to the kind of level that it would go to. But even Egypt, you see in that last uh, portion we just read from chapter 18, 
Assyria boasting against Egypt. Egypt were no threat in their own eyes to, or in, in Assyria's eyes. And so gradually these nations are being subdued. Now we also mentioned, just to give you an idea, there are other kings of Assyria, but these are the key ones that the, we see of, uh, from a biblical perspective, um, going all the way through the first oppression from Assyria on Israel, we read about in 2 Kings 15 by this individual named Pul. Um, then Tilgath um, Pileser III, um, he's the one who Ahaz um, of Judah ends up kind of paying him to support him against Israel. And then we finally get to this man, Shalmaneser, and he then lays siege to Samaria for three years. And then finally, Sargon, uh, after that three-year period, ends up completing that work and carrying away captive. Now, on various tablets that have been found, they boast that 27,280 people were carried away from the northern kingdom. We then get to this king here. And this is the king that we're looking at this morning. This is the king who's going to lead this assault on Judah. He's already taken some of the cities. And we'll look at the details in just a moment. Um, and we read just again, just that verse. It was the 14th year of Hezekiah. Uh, Shennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. Now, and we're going to find that from the inscriptions and so on, and I'll show you where those inscriptions come from in just a moment, um, they boast that 46 of the strong cities of Hezekiah had been taken, and many other villages as well. Imagine this. you know, A nation that's under threat from another nation, militarily much stronger than they are. And you've got this king, this relatively young king, Hezekiah, in his position of leadership. What would you do if you were thrust into that kind of situation? You know, there's no planning or training for this kind of thing. You've got this king that's coming up and threatening to destroy your land, to take all your people away captive. You know, do you just bury your head in the sand and hope it's not going to happen? But what are the people going to say? Are the people going to stand with you? Will the people rebel against you? I'm sure there were many people that were very critical of Hezekiah, of what he was doing, the decisions he was making. But we do get the general feeling, as we saw there, Hezekiah said, don't speak to these people, and the people listen to their king. It shows that there was generally this respect for Hezekiah. And we find then these military chiefs, these three individuals, this Tartan, Rab Saris, and Rab Shekah, um, then come and they bring the warnings and the threats from this uh, Shennacherib king of Assyria, and they're shouting over the wall. Now, just an interesting aside, why did they even bother doing that? Or maybe it was simply that they would just prefer to do it without the fight if they could, save their resources, to then maybe Hezekiah, Jerusalem, was not really a problem. It would be much easier if they just threatened them and then they just capitulated and they could just take them away. But whatever the reason, they enter into dialogue first before they start firing upon them or, or whatever else. And as we said, they start to speak to the people. You know, maybe they've sensed already that the leadership of the nation is united behind their king. But what about the people? If we can get the people to turn, there's a real threat of mutiny, isn't there? There's all sorts of potential problems for Hezekiah that he's got to suddenly address and deal with. Well, I'm not going to read all the, the text there. I'll let you uh, look at that. This will be up on the website uh, later today. We'll put the, the notes up there. Um, this is referred to as the Shennacherib prism, and it's just a kind of a clay um, prism um, that 
on which is written this text where the Shennacherib boasts about these 46 cities that he's already captured and that he's got Hezekiah trapped in Jerusalem like a caged bird. You know, the, the kings of Assyria were very quick to try and record their greatness in all sorts of ways. Now, this is uh, held in America, this particular one, but uh, looking this week, I found that we've got our own one in the British Museum, referred to as the Taylor Prison because of the man uh, that uh, found it, uh, British Colonel R. Taylor, back in 1830. Uh, this was found in Nineveh. Um, and it's the record dating back to about 701 BC of this campaign when, uh, again, we've got Shennacherib coming against Israel, against Hezekiah, and so on. And if you look here, uh, it involved the destruction of 46 cities instead of Judah and the deportation of 200,150 people. So that's the situation that Hezekiah is already faced with. You know, this is a formidable threat. And I want to just kind of relay the, the scene for us because it's so easy to read the text and kind of like, oh yeah, well that was that, and just move on. But this was really a very, very serious situation that King Hezekiah is faced with. Now what would you be doing right now faced with that problem? You've got this big army encamped outside. <clears throat> Again, Rabshakeh warns that God would not be able to save them. And of course he compares it to the other nations. The gods of the nations have not been able to deliver them. Why is your God going to be any different? Well, it's the fundamental difference between who our God is and who the gods of the nations are. The gods of the nations are just idols, we're told. Psalm 96 verse 5 tells us that. But Rab Shaker's message was that the people of Judah will be much better to go to Assyria. There's going to be abundance and they could prosper. And as we said last time, that's exactly the same lure that we have today. Go and join the world. You know, you may not look out of your bedroom window and see a siege against you. But every time you walk into your living room, it's there. There's a little black box in the corner that's laying siege against your mind and your heart. Every time you go down the high street, you're confronted with images and advertising and all sorts of things that are laying siege against your mind and your heart. Every time you talk to non-Christians, ungodly people, they'll be saying things that will be laying siege against your mind and your heart. And of course, the lure is, your God can't save you. Your God can't give you the things you need. Just come to the world. We'll give you everything. You'll be satisfied. And we have that list there that we just looked at in chapter 18. All the, the wonderful things that there'll be in Assyria. Well, that's the challenge to each of us right now. But back to the, to the scene. There's something wrong with this picture, and I'll tell you what it is later. But it just gives you an idea of maybe what it would have been like with Jerusalem, with the walls that are fortified, and this massive army gathered outside. I mean, really, really quite terrifying for the people as they look over the walls of the city and they see this army. You know, the other cities around them had fallen. There was very little left of an army that Hezekiah could have mustered together. That's the, the threat they're under. And yet they've got to be thinking, there is no way we can win. There is no way we can defeat this lot. The only hope was maybe that something that Hezekiah could do to maybe get some sort of uh, abatement, some appeasement, some maybe give him some more gold or whatever they could find in the city. And maybe they'd leave them alone for a while. But they knew this threat was coming. 
They'd seen it in the nations around them, gradually building and so on. We'll come back to more of that in a while. But there's a twofold challenge, really, then, that Hezekiah is facing. Firstly, it's you can't win, so don't fight. And that's really the the challenge that often Satan will bring to us. You know, look at the the problems you face. You're not going to win. What's the bother of fighting? There's no point fighting. That kind of challenge just to give up, just to quit. Of course, the devil would love us just to do that, wouldn't he? You know, even, oh, what's the point in going to church? Really? Think of all the things you could do on a Sunday if you didn't come to church instead. What about reading your Bible or praying? You know, you're not going to solve all the, the problems in your life and the, the challenges you face. You're, you're still going to have your financial concerns and the things you're worrying about and problems at work and you know, family issues and so on. You know, maybe you should just put your time and effort and energy into those things. And You, know, you haven't got time to, to pray and read your Bible. Don't do that. So that's the challenge that we have. That's exactly where Satan would like us to get us to start with. But the second challenge that comes is that promise of an easy and abundant life you simply conform. And that's the one we mentioned a moment ago. And these two challenges now facing every individual that is within the city of Jerusalem at this time. And particularly for Hezekiah. How easy would it have been for Hezekiah to just say, you know, okay, we can't beat you. Just take the city. You know, just please spare the people. And they already said, you know, look, you can come to our land, you can live, you can be in peace, so we're fine. And maybe if Hezekiah had capitulated, maybe they'd have even given Hezekiah some sort of responsibility. In the Assyrian government, maybe they'd have made him kind of a vassal king somewhere and said, well, we'll give you this responsibility. You know, it might have been a good way out of that. But you see, there was another problem. And we'll come to that in just a moment. Two Kings eighteen verse three. Do you remember what we read at the beginning of chapter eighteen? Talking of Hezekiah, I said, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. You see, this isn't just a statement that Hezekiah did some stuff that was good. That's true. This is a statement of the thoughts and intents of his heart. You see, David, we are told, was a man after God's own heart. And we're told that Hezekiah did according to all that David, his father, did. It's not just talking about the external actions. It's talking about his heart. And the problem is for Hezekiah, whilst his head might be telling him to give in, his heart won't allow him to do so. Because his heart has already been given over to God. And that should be the challenge for each one of us. When the devil comes and presents these challenges of, you want to give in or just accept the way the world is. There should be a real cry in our heart. Saying, no, I will not do that. I will not give in because I have this relationship with God. Because God has never let me down in the past. You know, this does beg that question, of course, that Hezekiah, good king, we've stated that already, and all this trouble comes upon them, you know, and there's the real prospect of defeat by Assyria and the danger of his own people defecting. So why do bad things happen to good people? You know, of all the kings that we've seen that maybe deserve this kind of problem, Hezekiah seems like a really good king. You think, why didn't God spare him this? And maybe you look at your own life and you look at other nominal Christians. 
And they don't seem to have the kind of stresses and pressures that maybe you seem to go through. They don't seem to have the kind of challenges. Everything seems to be going okay. And You know, why is it that God allows in your own life things that really are a great challenge sometimes? You know, and it may not be directly you. It may be as you look at your children or your friends and you see the way that they are struggling and suffering. And just as Hezekiah looks at his own people and no, no doubt his heart was kind of bleeding for them. So why does God allow those kind of things? Well, part of it comes from, the answer comes from James chapter 1. And we saw this when we went through the book of James at our Bible study uh, recently. My brethren, says James, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Or various trials is also translated. Count it joy. Now that's just so counterintuitive. But... On its own, that's strange, but verse 3 helps us to understand. Knowing this, this is what we've got to understand. That the trying of your faith works patience. And then we're told, but let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Lacking nothing. You see, God wants to transform us into something that we don't really understand because we've never been there before. We don't know quite what it is that God's after because we've never really experienced it. But as God does these things in our lives, we can look back and we can see that we're in a better place now than we were. We can see that we may not have understood the trials we've gone through, but those trials have strengthened us. We certainly did enjoy, no doubt, at the time, the things we were going through. But this is why James says, now I want you to understand that when you go through a trial, firstly, and we looked at this again when we were going through our Bible study, number one, you will have trials. It's not an optional thing as a believer. It's not something you can say, yeah, I think I'll take that and that and that as you go through your Christian life. Trials are mandatory. They're part of the course. So you're going to have trials. So accept it. But then understand that when trials come... The reason for them. You know, do you realize that there is no reason for God to leave you on earth now? You see, your sin was paid for at Calvary. The Bible tells us that at some point in the future, Jesus will come and take us to be with him. The only thing that is delaying that, God's wisdom and foreknowledge, of course, but is this. That God is allowing us to go through trials. Why? Because he wants us to be perfect and complete. Why? Because he has something so much more than we can possibly imagine. The Bible does give us hints of what maybe lay before us in eternity. Some of the responsibilities that maybe will be given. But it's almost like you're sitting an exam, but you don't quite know what will happen if you pass the exam, what the reward will be. But what we do know is the reward will be infinitely greater than we can ever comprehend this side of eternity. But understand that when those trials come, the Lord will allow them to make us perfect because he wants us to be complete. And sometimes it's only through that struggle we can become. Bob will probably be better than I to uh, talk about butterflies, having a passion for, for butterflies. Yesterday at the uh, zoo, we went to, to Longleat uh, with the girls, and we had a great time and looking at the, the wonderful creatures. But some of the butterflies were just amazing. And there was this wonderful display of butterflies and showing right from 
um, you know, the, the, the basically the lava stage going on through the chrysalises and so on, and all the various stages. And there are some lovely big, big butterflies. So beautiful. You know, but it's that struggle that a butterfly goes through as it's kind of emerging through, coming out of the chrysalis, that forces the fluid into its wings that allows it to fly. What a great example of us. You know, if we don't go through that struggle, we'll never be able to fly as God intended. There's many other examples in nature where we see those kind of things as well. Let's get back to the text. 2 Chronicles, which is a kind of parallel passage to this. This is after these things and the establishment thereof. Shennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Shennacherib was come and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains, which were without the city, and they did help him. So the idea is they don't want all these waters coming into the city because if they get into the city and they find that there's water and everything else, then they may just, it may be an incentive for them to try and even take the city by force. But of course they still needed water. So they do these various uh, groundworks and so on. Verse 4 carries on. So there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land saying, why should the king of Assyria come and find much water? Now, as part of this building program that was going on, or this, these groundworks were being done, Hezekiah dug a tunnel. And you may have heard of this famous tunnel of Hezekiah. And it's a route that goes from within the city of Jerusalem all the way, right the way outside of the walls and ends up down here at the Paul of Siloam. Okay, and it's an incredible feat of engineering. You can go and visit this tunnel today. You can go down all these long steps down underground. And it's okay to start with. But as you start to get into the tunnel, it starts to get quite narrow. Now, uh, this was when I was back in Israel in uh, 07. Uh, so you remember Hannah, uh, Ron's daughter. Well, you can see that's a waistline. And that's where the water had come up to at this point. So that was about as high. So you're going to almost waist deep in water at places as the water's coming through this tunnel. Um, the ceiling here, you can see there, and then the head height here. But as you go through, it starts to get a lot lower. And there's a point you're kind of crouching and you're thinking, if this gets any lower, I'm going back. And uh, anyway, it goes on. And you go through the tunnel, it comes out of the Paul of Siloam. Incredible feat of engineering. Now, even by today's standards, that would be pretty impressive. I, I used to, as you know, live in Kent and uh, was uh, watching as they were building the Channel Tunnel. And you saw this heavy machinery going in and uh, back on the side of the M20 for a number of years, they had the big drill. Uh, some of you may have gone down the M20 uh, and seen that. And the big cutting mechanism that had cut through from this side. And of course the French had had theirs that had cut through and they met in the middle. And that was pretty impressive. Um, and there was also science behind how they got them to meet directly in the middle. Well, they dug this tunnel from both ends and still managed to meet. And the incredible thing is the tunnels aren't straight. They kind of weave all over the place. Uh, but they still managed to meet in the middle. But what would drive people to that kind of level? Well, because of this threat that was there. I just want to emphasize again what it was like in Jerusalem and how desperate they were, how real this threat of invasion was. So let's jump into to chapter 19 and we read, It came to pass that when Hezekiah heard it, all these things we've just been looking at, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Wow. Just stop and think about that for a second. You know, what would you have done? 
Would you have gone and asked other people their thoughts, their opinions? Would you have took counsel from others? You know, where do you go when you're in trouble? Do you have a, a place or to something to which you resort? You know, some of us have hobbies, distractions that kind of we go to just to kind of switch off the world sometimes. And they're not necessarily wrong. But sometimes we can bury our head in the sand almost and use those as a distraction just to, to kind of shut off the noise of the world, the problems that surround us. And we find sometimes temporary relief from those things. Sometimes those things can be sinful. Sometimes those things can be rebellion against God. And it's almost like we kind of want to just come out of the game for a little while and forget that we're Christians, forget that we're supposed to be serving God. You know, sadly, some people resort to all sorts of things, to drugs, to alcohol, to other things that they think will bring them comfort. And they never do. But look at Hezekiah. What a great king. Faced with this incredible problem, he goes into the house of the Lord. Just a wonderful thing. Just keep that in mind. You know, next time you are troubled, that's the place to go. Come before God. Psalm 32, 7 says, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. That word selah, you find it repeated in Psalms. It's kind of meditate on this. Think about this. Psalm 119 verse 114 says, Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. You know, when you are troubled, when there is something that comes into your life that you don't know how to deal with, Go to God. Go straight to God. Don't stop on route anywhere else. Go straight to God. We find that he sent Eliakim, which is over the household, and Sheba, the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. So Hezekiah sends, notice here, these three people. We've got Eliakim. A really important character. He's over the household. He's got this incredibly important role. We've got Shebna here. The scribe, again, a very important role. And the elders of the priests. So it's just, you know, I think this is fascinating. Because they're all sent to inquire of God's word through Isaiah. They recognize that Isaiah is a man of God. And they send this delegation to find out what God's word is. And I think it's interesting because it really speaks of the value that Hezekiah places on God's word. You know, the question for us is, you know, do you give your most valuable resources to inquire after God's word when in need? Because that's exactly what Hezekiah is doing. He's giving the best that he has in a sense, to go to Isaiah to see what God has for him. You know, so often, God's word is something that gets relegated to the end of our day, or maybe a bit of time at the beginning, but is it something that we resort to continually? How much value do you place on God's word? And they said unto him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and blasphemy, for the children are come to birth and there is no strength to bring forth. Really, that's just saying that we've come this far. Surely it can't end here now when we need to be strong. You know, Hezekiah ended up thinking of the history and heritage of the nation 
all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of Joseph and the children being led down into Egypt and the way that God preserved them there, then led them out with his strong hand under Moses across the Red Sea. And then from Sinai led them through the wilderness under Joshua into the promised land. And then all the various judges until finally we get to the monarchy and the kings that were established and the height that the nation reached under Solomon. It's a guy saying, you know, it's like, a woman who's come to the place of giving birth. All the, the really hard work has gone now. It's all happened. And, but there's no strength left to bring to birth. And it's also what um, Hezekiah says here in this message he takes to Isaiah. Or these people take to Isaiah for him. He says, it's a day of trouble, rebuke and blasphemy. Trouble really speaking of the affliction from the hand of the enemy. We've seen that. Rebuke though, understanding that part of this is clearly chastisement and correction from God. That seems to be the, the intent of what Hezekiah is saying. He's not trying to dodge it and saying, well, why do we deserve this? He recognizes that no, a number of the kings of the nation preceding him have not followed God. Actually, they're overdue judgment. But he also says blasphemy. Notice that this is really the grounds on which the appeal is made. They have blasphemed you, God. And this is very interesting, the way the Hezekiah deals with this. Now the question, how do you respond when God is blasphemed? The problem is for us today that God is blasphemed so frequently that we've become so accustomed to it that almost we don't react anymore. How would a Muslim react if you blasphemed Muhammad? Just think about that for a second. How do you react when somebody blasphemes Jesus Christ? Well, I can tell you now that Hezekiah was not going to stand by and allow the God that he loved and served to be blasphemed by this heathen who's boasting of all his wonderful conquests and saying that God can't help you. It's almost that kind of situation we read of and it will come later with Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael, as they are thrown into the fiery furnace they say to Nebuchadnezzar you know well God is able to save us but even if he doesn't we're not going to bow to you I got into a very interesting conversation this week with a Muslim Israel came up as a topic of conversation which is always a, an interesting one and this individual made the comment that oh, Israel are bullies I said really he said yeah I said, okay, what? So Israel with one one-thousandth of the world population. He said, yeah. I said, the bullies, are they? He said, yes, they are. You know, if you go to an airport, it's never an Israeli bomb they're looking for. Never. Israel has been repeatedly attacked by Arab nations, and yet not a single UN resolution was passed against any Arab nation on account of the five wars they'd started against Israel... And incredibly, three out of five of all the General Assembly and Security Council resolutions passed up to 1990 were all directed against Israel. They've not been the aggressor. They've been trying to defend themselves. You know, when you go back to 1948, Israel told those that were in the land, this war of independence as it's sometimes referred to, they told those who were in the land to stay, that they would be okay. The Arabs told them to leave, the Muslims told them to leave. 
And then they wouldn't allow them back. Incredibly, Israel absorbed over 900,000 Jewish refugees that were forced out of all the other nations in the Middle East. They had nowhere else to go. Out of Libya and Egypt and other countries, they were all forced out and they came back and they lived in Israel. And Israel, this small little nation, no, in fact smaller than Wales, they absorbed them. The 450,000 or so Arab refugees, those that have been living in this land, weren't allowed back. And that's what created the refugee camps, the refugee problem that we had, which in many respects has continued to this day. And you look at the land that the Arab nations collectively have got between them. This individual started telling me, oh, but Israel has stolen the land. I said, really? I said, who gave them the land? Oh, well, it was the British gave them the land. Okay. Well, let's look, work on that basis just for a moment. What about... Iraq or Kuwait or Jordan, Lebanon, Syria. You know, where did their land grants come from? That came from the same agreement at the same time. Why is it that people never question Kuwait's title or right to their land? Or why do people never question Jordan's right or title to their land? You see, what happened is Israel were promised land and then it was taken away. And then even that was taken away. And, you know, you can look at the history of this. It's all there. You see, God is frequently blasphemed. And people speak about the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and with real disdain. And Hezekiah, once again, wasn't going to allow this. And <clears throat> Hezekiah carries on it may be that the Lord thy God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh whom the king of Assyria his master has sent to reproach the living God and will prove the words which the Lord thy God has heard wherefore lift up thy prayer for the remnant that are left and this is the message that's coming to Isaiah notice what he asks the one request from the king to this prophet please pray wow what an importance this king places upon prayer. The one thing he asked him to do is pray. Sometimes we neglect the importance of prayer and how much prayer can actually do as we come before God and we petition him and God delights to respond to the prayers of his people. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Lord. So this is now the message. This is what Isaiah says God is saying. Thus says the Lord, Be not afraid. Now what a great three words to start with. Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, and with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. You see, God wasn't ignorant of the situation. You see, sometimes we kind of almost think that God doesn't know. He's not aware. God knew. Behold, I will send a blast upon him. And he shall hear a rumor and shall return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. <laughs> now, the real test of faith, because there's still an army encamped right outside your door at the moment. Are you going to take God at his word? Do you trust what this aging prophet is saying? Oswald Chambers 
makes this comment, I've said this before, but I think it's just so insightful, so valuable. He says, if we learn to worship God in the trying circumstances, he will alter them in two seconds when he chooses. What a wonderful thing. You know, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials and so on. When you learn to worship God in the trying circumstances, and that's the key, to learn to worship God, to put God first then. So Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Lebanon. Now we're not told quite what causes him to leave, but whatever the reason is, he heads back to Assyria. He doesn't get the answer from the king that he's looking for. But he goes back, presumably to report on everything that's all the transaction, the conversation that's taken place. And he finds this war going on. For he'd heard that he departed from Larkish. Now we'll talk a little bit about Larkish in a moment. It's another city not far from Jerusalem in Israel. So the king of Assyria had finished his battle, heads off. And when he heard say of, how do we pronounce him? Turharka, king of Ethiopia. Behold, he has come out to fight against this. And now another nation trying to defend themselves. And Ethiopia at this time had been a very strong power. Come out to fight against thee. He sent messages again to Hezekiah. So now another message come back to Hezekiah saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God in whom thou trustest deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by destroying them utterly. Shall thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed? As Gozon and Haran and Rezef and the children of Eden, which were in Thessalon. Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arphad and the kings of the city of Seraphim and Hena and Eva? And these are places towards Babylon in that area that Assyria had already conquered. And the challenge, of course, is, you know, they've all fallen. Don't think you're off the hook. Just because now the army has gone back and had to get involved in other battles. Interesting enough, you go to the British Museum, and I was looking at some of these things during the week up there, and there is so much that we have depicted of these battles. This is just one relief, maybe a bit faint in detail, um, but this is actually what the, the plaque says that's right by the side of it. It says, the Assyrian, or so this Assyrian stone panel shows Babylonian prisoners in a camp. Some hold bundles, others tend the fire, uh, take a drink from an animal skin container. To the left, an Assyrian soldier stands guard. Now, these things aren't easy to carve out. If you get a piece of stone and you try and do a nice elaborate drawing on it like that, it'll probably take you a bit of time. These are very skillful works of art. And they're doing it to preserve the memory of their conquests. And these are probably amongst the ones that we've just read in that passage. Let's go back to that previous verse. These nations that are mentioned here would be amongst those that are depicted in this relief that have been drawn. You know, they wanted to document everything, to, to boast in a sense of how great they were, to leave it for future generations to see just how great a king Shennacherib was and, and the other kings and so on. And Hezekiah received the letter at the hand of the messengers and read it. So this letter saying, don't think you're off the hook. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. I love this as well. What a great thing we find here. Because now again Hezekiah is not kind of in that, okay, we're we're totally free of all the problems. Suddenly we've got this another letter saying, we're going to come back and get you. And he goes and takes it to God again. 
It's interesting because the letter is addressed to Hezekiah, but Hezekiah effectively says, uh, sorry God, that's for you. It's got my name on it, but you're really the recipient. Because Hezekiah realizes that he's there because God has appointed him. He's not there because he chose the role or he's there because God had appointed him. This is God's problem. And this is the way we need to think about the things that we find in our life. Throw it back on God. God can cope with it. Hezekiah was simply a representative of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He was just an ambassador. He'd been given this wonderful privilege of being king over the nation. But this threat isn't a threat against Hezekiah personally. Not as such. It's a threat against God. It's God's people. Hezekiah realizes this and this is the way that he responds now. It wasn't Hezekiah's burden to carry. One of the words that great hymn, I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear my burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. Jesus can help me. Jesus alone. There are things to store in our mind. When we face these trials, just as Hezekiah did, you know what? It's not my problem. It's God's problem. You know, you have been bought at a price. You belong to God. Any problems you face, you just leave a forwarding address straight on to God every time now. Every problem that comes to you, straight to God. God, it's yours. Your problem. Every time you're in financial difficulties, take it straight to God. David spoke of never seeing those who are gods begging for bread. God can deal with it. Peter's facing a predicament where they've got to pay taxes to, to Rome. Jesus says, just go and go down and take a coin out of that fish's mouth. Paid, done, sorted. I'm not saying God will suddenly wipe out your debt, but what I'm saying is you trust God in these things and God will ensure you are safe and are carried through. And whatever else it is in our life, whatever other problem we may face, take it to God. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwells between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made the heaven and the earth. You see, Hezekiah knows who God is, and he gives God glory and credit for being the creator. This comment here, this is just again quite insightful, but Hezekiah speaking to God. I, I really think it's important. I, I've said this before and I say it again. I hope you understand what I'm saying. I've already said how important prayer is. Of the two, I would rather you read the Bible than pray. And the reason for that is because you don't know how to pray until you know the Bible. If you know the Bible, you will pray effectively and your heart will be stirred to pray. But if you try and pray without knowing scripture, you will just waffle. Read the Bible. As you read the Bible, you will see how the people in the Bible prayed. And then you can pray effectively. You can pray with real purpose, with real meaning. And you can pray in a way that is powerful. And of course you can't separate those two. Both are vital for our lives as Christians. But you know, ultimately, 
Prayer is so often our communication to God. What we need is input from God to start with. We need God to fill our hearts and our minds and our understanding with his word. And then we're in a good place to pray. We'll pray in accordance with his will. And this is how Hezekiah prays before the Lord. First of all, he gives him his right title. O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, acknowledging who God... You know, what is it that Jesus says we should pray when we pray? Our Father, which art in heaven... You know, when we pray so often, our focus is on us, our problems, our need, the problem, the predicament, whatever. When Jesus says, teaches how to pray, and actually Jesus himself sticks to his own model, if you read in John um, 15, 16, and 17, when Jesus prays there, Jesus follows his own model. And the first thing he does is to acknowledge who God is. If you start your prayers by acknowledging that God is our Father, that he's in heaven. He sees things in a way that you can't possibly see. By the time you get all the way down to give us this day our daily bread, like help me now, I'm this predicament or whatever, I need this, you know, you, the whole situation's changed because you're starting to look at it from God's perspective and not your own. Hezekiah does it here. Lord God of Israel, which dwells between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone. Now, even just praying this prayer is no doubt filling his heart with that confidence that there is no other God. The gods of the nations of whom God is being compared here are nothing. So to say that the other gods couldn't help their people is irrelevant, it's inadmissible, it means nothing in the context because our God is not like those gods. Our God is the one true God. Thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made the heaven and earth. Just this phrase though, dwelling between the cherubims, we first see this at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. Back in Genesis 3.24, as Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, God effectively dwells between the cherubim. If you look at the text that's there, he places these cherubim there to guard the way to the tree of life. And God effectively dwells there between the cherubim. That's the first time we see that in scripture. It's depicted, of course, on the mercy seat. Exodus 25, verse 18. As Moses is being given the details to create or to build this box, this rectangular box, overlaying it with gold, wooden box. But then the mercy seat is made of solid gold. Mercy seat, really, in all intents and purposes, is a throne. I believe, personally, it's the very throne upon which Jesus will sit when he returns. But this mercy seat is overshadowed by these cherubim, God dwelling in the midst. And upon that mercy seat, that blood of the offerings was to be sprinkled upon the mercy seat. We see it in Ezekiel chapter 10, before the throne in heaven. In a sense, the real version of all of this, as God is there before the throne, and these cherubims are there as well. But then we also see probably the ultimate revelation of this at the garden tomb. In John 20 verse 12, we find that there's another box that's been hewn out of the the rock. And it's upon that box that the body of Jesus had been lain. And the blood of Jesus sprinkled upon 
this surface. And as John arrives at the tomb, we have this account of these two angelic beings, these two cherubim, either side of the mercy seat. There's a huge amount in what Hezekiah is praying here. Speaking of the one who dwells between the cherubims. It's speaking of the mercy of our God. He says, Lord, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see. It's strange, isn't it, that he would pray to God, that God should open his eyes. Of course, God's eyes are already open. See and hear the words of Shennacherib, which has sent him to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. But he says, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they've destroyed them. Again, I mentioned this earlier, Psalm 96 verse 5, just says, For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. By the way, it's becoming increasingly unpopular, unpopular to say that God is the only God. You may have recalled this week, the Pope in his visit to America made a statement about eradicating extremism. And I don't know whether you caught a little bit of what he said, but he intimated that what he means by that is that those that say there is only one way, I thought, how interesting. Because isn't that what Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Now therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, I beg you, Lord, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. See, this is a case of unless God comes through, there is no tomorrow. You know, there's loads of examples of this. We've got Moses before the Red Sea, the Egyptians bearing down on him, Israel about to lynch him. Gideon in the situation with the Midianites, a much more powerful army. Gideon's army whittled down to just 300 by God. Unless God comes through, there's no tomorrow. David standing before this giant, just a young boy, against this mighty warrior. Unless God comes through, there is no tomorrow. And Daniel, so many examples we could give in Daniel's life. God so often gets us in this place. He'll remove any other option until your only choice is him. You see, we have been given free will, no question about that. But God is also sovereign. But sometimes God just removes every other option. Until the only choice is to cry out and say, Lord, I trust you because I have nothing else. That's kind of where God wants us to get. You know, what's the first thing in the Bible that God declares is not good? The Bible trivia quiz for you. Well, let me tell you the answer. It's found in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 18. God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, if you've ever seen a man that's alone, you'll understand why, possibly. I'm very grateful to my wife. She's helped me to organize myself. I have clean socks and things. You know, it's a good thing that God says that he would make a help meet for him. But, you know, it's not good. You see, man was built for relationship. That's the purpose of this comment. This is what God is saying really through this. 
But ultimately, that relationship and even marriage is only to point us toward the ultimate relationship between Christ and his church, the bride of Christ. Micah 6 verse 8 says, He has shown thee, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That's what God wants. He wants to have a relationship with us. Why does God allow some of the trials we go through? Well, some of them certainly God allows so that we run to him. There were a couple of times yesterday where some of the... uh, animals and creatures and there was a particular spider that Amita wasn't too keen on produced a reaction in her that sent her running to me and I have to say whilst I wasn't pleased that she was frightened there was something lovely about her pick her up and give her a cuddle God does that with us sometimes God allows these things so that we get our eyes on him as a loving father so that we realize just who he is but sadly so often we then go back from that relationship and we carry on the way we were. God wants us to walk with him. So let's just bring this chapter to conclusion. So, then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, That which thou hast prayed to me against Shennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at thee. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? You see, God effectively now, as we were saying earlier, Hezekiah had realized this is God's problem. And God is saying, who is it that you think that you've reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice, and lifted up thine eyes on high? Even against the Holy One of Israel. All of a sudden, this great king of Assyria is really, really quite small as he's standing before God effectively. And one day, in reality, before on, on judgment day, he will stand in this position. By the messengers thou hast reproached the Lord, and hast said, With the multitude of my chariots I am come up into the height of the mountains to the sides of Lebanon, and will cut down the tall cedars, trees thereof, and the choice fir trees thereof, and I will enter into the lodgings of his borders, and into the forest of his Carmel, Mount Carmel speaking of, and have digged and drunk strange, strange waters, and with the sole of my feet have I dried up the rivers of besieged places. Hast thou not heard how long ago I have done it, and of ancient times that I have formed it? Now have I brought it to pass, that thou should be to lay waste fenced cities into ruinous heaps. You see, God takes over verse 25. You see, God is the one who has allowed these things, and allowed Assyria to do what they've done. Therefore their inheritance were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field, as the green herb, and as the grass on the housetops, as the as corn blasted before it be grown up. But I know thy abide, God says to Assyria. And thy going out, and thy coming in, and thy rage against me. Because thy rage against me and thy tumult is come up into my knees, therefore I will put my hook into thy nose and my bridle into thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way which thou camest. Now, that is a reference. Remember the other week I spoke about the way the Assyrians would lead people away captive. They would literally sew them together. 
And they would start to sew through their ears or through their nose and with hooks and join them like chains together. And physically sewn together so that in the long chain of people as they were leading away, nobody could escape, nobody could run off. God's saying now, just as you've done to other people, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn you back by the way which you came. And this shall be a sign unto you. Now this, now speaking to Hezekiah. You shall eat this year such as grow of themselves, and in the second year that which brings of the same, and in the third year sow you and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruit thereof. And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upwards. I love that. You see, what God is saying here is that to Hezekiah, don't worry, you're going to stay in this place for now. But notice what this deliverance is all about. It's that you produce fruit. And that's what God would have of you and I. That we produce fruit for him. Verse 30 again. And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Whatever trial you have gone through or are going through or will go through, when you come out the other side of that, the purpose is that you start to take root downward again. You put your feet down into the soil of God's word. You start to bear fruit upward. Don't stay as you were when you come out the other side of the trial. Bear fruit for God from it. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion. And notice what we're told. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Wow. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when they arose in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. It's just kind of almost easy to read that to move on. But the magnitude of this, this incredible army that is encamped, getting ready to come and destroy Jerusalem. Once again, if we learn to worship God in the trying circumstances, he'll alter them in two seconds when he chooses. I guarantee you, Hezekiah had not thought this through and come to that conclusion. He never thought that God would do something like this. And yet God does because this king and these people have blasphemed him. Incredible. You know, just to, we can't imagine this scene. 185,000 of this incredibly strong and powerful army suddenly wiped out. It's interesting, you know, just thinking of the power that angels have. In the book of Revelation, we read in verse 1 of chapter 20, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now, I, just, I love this scripture because we don't even have an archangel. This is just a regular, everyday angel. And this regular everyday angel, at God's command, comes and binds Satan. 
In a sense, our chief adversary is bound by just a regular angel. You know, God says that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to them that are heirs of salvation. You and I. Ministering spirits around us. We don't see them. They're there, but they're in a different reality. So Shennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went to return and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass that as he was worshipping the house of uh, Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and uh, Sherezer, his sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Ezar Hayden, his son, reigned in his stead. So this king dies. His army's wiped out. And he dies too. It's interesting because just a little bit backtrack of history, and just is just his closing now. This is from the, the British Museum. They've got this plaque up, but they've got a whole room, I'll show you in a second. That's devoted to the capture of Larshish. This is another prominent city in Israel. And it just says in seven oh one BC, Hezekiah, king of Judah, was implicated in a rebellion against Assyrian rule in Palestine. Well, okay, well, well Ignore the fact that they're the British Museum, they should be concerned with history, and it wasn't called Palestine at that point. It wasn't called Palestine until Hadrian renamed it about 132 AD, and then named it after the Philistines, who are Israel's enemies, which is why it became called Palestine. There were never any Palestinian people. It's just a thing that's been made up by the media, the press, and everything else, and the British Museum should know that. But, sorry, just moving on. Shennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked and defeated the rebels and their Egyptian allies, he did not capture Hezekiah's capital, Jerusalem. And then they say, he may not even have planned to. Really? I mean, come on, these are supposed to be scholars that are kind of behind these things. And then, let me just show you, this is a picture, that they've actually got this picture at the British Museum, uh, depicting the siege of Larshish with the Assyrians carrying some away captive, and this kind of bombardment against the walls, and we know that Larshish fell. There's a whole room at the British Museum, full of these reliefs all around the room, and there's more on this side, and there's got cases with the... Um, um, the um, the bullets of the balls that were used to fire across the wall and all sorts of other things they found um, from the, the ruins of the siege. The whole of this room is devoted to this one thing. Now, you've got these kings of Assyria that loved to um, have these great plaques made at great time and expense. All these, these are kind of stone reliefs that they've been carved and beautifully, intricately done. And this was around one of the palaces uh, in, uh, in um, Assyria that they've uncovered. You know, you're telling me that after all that they've done of conquering all the other nations of 46 cities in Jerusalem in Israel, laying siege to Larshish, coming against Jerusalem, and then he goes, ah, don't bother with Jerusalem. It's a, it's a stupid comment to make. There is no question they wanted to take Jerusalem. And they dismissed the biblical account that we've just looked at. Because they'll say, well, we, we don't even know whether they did really want to take Jerusalem or not. Yes, of course they did. They wanted to conquer the whole area. They weren't just going to leave Hezekiah there. I mean, how would it have looked to this king of Assyria to leave Hezekiah alone? All it would have said is that we can't defeat his God. No, they wanted to take Jerusalem. So that begs the question, why didn't they? Interestingly, just another theory... Is it, just let me just read this. It's in What If, which is a collection of essays on counterfactual history, historian William Hardy McNeil speculates that the accounts of mass death 
among the Assyrian army in the Tanakh, that's the Jewish Old Testament, might be explained by an outbreak of cholera or other waterborne diseases due to the springs beyond the city walls having been blocked, thus depriving the besieging force of a safe water supply. It goes on. It's ridiculous. You know, interestingly though, he acknowledges that something happened to significantly deplete the Assyrian army. So much so that Assyria never rises to that kind of power again. In fact, from this point we see Assyria getting weaker and weaker and weaker. This guy goes on, he says, The extraordinary defeat of Shnekera, which McNeil suggests by disease, which was as yet not understood, would have proven Yahweh superior to the gods of the most powerful nation then known to the Jews, Assyria. McNeil concludes that if Shnekereb had taken the city, the Jews may have adopted polytheism. Consequently, the Abrahamic faith of Judaism, Christianity, Islam would not exist. Absolute nonsense. You see, the Bible is a reliable historical document. There is no other explanation for what happened to this mass army that suddenly disappears from the scene. This king that would have loved to have taken Jerusalem, but for some reason he's unable to. Now, the Bible is true. We can trust the word of God. And God will deal with those who blaspheme his name. And the book of Revelation is very clear of all that is coming upon this world for those that have blasphemed him. We'll pick up and look at the final chapter of uh, this that deals with Hezekiah's life next week. Uh, And we're going to look at this incredible situation where Hezekiah falls sick. He's granted these extra years and the the potential danger uh, that that caused to the nation. Uh, But let's, for now, bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word once again. And Lord, these so many challenges to us. Father, the first challenge that is here today is to bring everything before you. Lord, to come before you in prayer, to come before you. Lord, seeking your grace, seeking your mercy. But Lord, not to try and resolve our problems ourselves. So Father, help us to realize that you are a loving Father. And Lord, you have promised to give good gifts to those who are yours. So Father, please, we pray that you impress these things upon our hearts. Help us to trust you. Help us, Lord, to be more zealous for your name. Lord, in the the midst of the communities, the society in which we live. Lord, if people blaspheme your name, then, Lord, may we be bold like Hezekiah. And, Lord, we be prepared to stand up and be counted. For we are proud to serve and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who was made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, who now sits at the right hand of the Father. Father, we thank you for these things. Lord, may we be bold. Lord, in the grace that you provide. Lord, keep us close to you as we go from here today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.